Hello, welcome to Systematically, your weekly theology podcast. I'm John Heaps. I'm here with Robin Beret and Ryan Hemmer. Want to say hi, guys? Robin's got a mouthful of tea. Oh, hi. Got to keep those vocal cords velvety. Um, We are back. Thanks for listening this week. We hope you've enjoyed our previous episodes if you listened to them. And I have good news. You no longer have to just find us on SoundCloud. Though you're welcome to if you want to keep doing so. We are on iTunes. Ooh. Oh, hey, it iTunes. so much more official and fancy. I know, right? feels like we're a real podcast. Today, we are a podcast. So you can find us on iTunes. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. You could leave us a review. Five stars is a nice number. Uh, you could share us from the fancy uh, Apple iTunes interface, all that good stuff. So, you know, if you feel so moved, please. All right, we have intro questions for when once upon a time we will have guests. We're going to ask them a series of introductory questions so you can get to know them briefly before we get into the nerd stuff. And last week we had a good question from Robin, and I have the question today. So my question is, what's your favorite movie line? Now that favorite, favorite of course, is always tricky, right? Um, John's going to give us a theory of favorite. Now. That's right. No, no, I just mean like Buckle it could up. be most quotable. It could be something that just sort of sticks in your head. It could be something famous you like. Think of the question broadly. All right. Well, this is definitely not my like favorite of all time, but it's definitely the one I quote the most in like everyday life to the point where um, we sat down to watch The Princess Bride, which my roommate hadn't seen in years. And all of a sudden he's like, Oh, that's a quotation. <laughs> and of course, the, the excellent line is, life is pain, and anyone who tells you otherwise is selling something. Very strong. Very, very strong. Ryan, you got one for me? My, my problem is that uh, with a toddler, I don't really watch movies anymore because two hours to string together uninterrupted is impossible and i can't watch movies in installments so mostly i just watch 30 rock over and over and over again uh, as i fall asleep uh and and trying to pick a favorite line from that is impossible what am i a farmer yeah exactly every episode is just just jam-packed with uh quotable lines so you're punting is what you're telling me i am straight up punting garbage all right well mine is from uh, a slightly obscure david franken david frankenheimer well now i don't remember john frankenheimer thank you john frankenheimer movie called ronin from the late 90s with robert de niro and jean renault and sean bean and uh spoiler alert 20 years later sean bean doesn't die in this one though probably he should have um, but he, he, Sean Bean plays a character who has sort of uh, bluffed his way into this very high-level, uh, off-the-reservation espionage team, and he's clearly some kind of street hood. And he leans over to Robert De Niro at one point and says, you ever kill anybody? And Robert De Niro says, I hurt somebody's feelings once, uh, which is just the coolest thing I've ever heard. Um, anyway, you should watch Ronan. It's real good. All right. So that's, oh, so, oh yeah, go ahead. Before we get to the meat of the discussion, we should say that um, 
Brian Bajak is unable to be with us this morning because he's preparing to become Dr. Brian Bajak. True. He's he has on Monday, so you can send all your well wishes um, or other sentiments his way. Um, and uh, John is hosting kind of the meat of the discussion again today because um, I flaked out. Instead, I decided to finish a first draft of my dissertation. Hey. Yeah. That's right. Um, so uh, you guys are getting me an A, the post-draft hangover, but um, also, you know, for, for any of our listeners who are really concerned about, um, about you know, uh, gender equity meeting statistical norms, then um, <laughs> I know I haven't been talking 25% of the time, but also uh, this is why. So uh, I probably will be hosting the discussion next week, but, um, but this week we get an exciting... Um, Actually, an exciting exploration about gender and statistical norms from John. So it's, it's uh, true. I'm really excited about the uh, prospect at some point, Robin, of you talking about the theology of children. That's going to be really interesting. Someone on Twitter yesterday was saying, maybe it was Tim O'Malley, was saying that uh, that there's a real dearth of that. And uh, so I'm I'm excited to get to that when we when we can. When you're out of um, draft finishing land. Yep. As a plug in, as a like plug though for for people heading into like their PhD who are like, what topics do I need to do? Other than like the importance of theology of children, blah blah, it is really easy to become a master of what's been written on the topic. So just uh, just keep that in mind. There you go, everybody. Professional advice for free ninety nine. All right, so so this week um, we're going to look at some some other research I've done in the past. Uh, I actually got an email a couple nights ago from the editor at Theological Studies saying that uh, the article, that the argument I'm going to spell out in just a second is uh, found in, will appear in the March 2019 issue of Theological Studies. So you can be on the lookout for that. And the name of the article is, uh, the main title is Statistically Normal. And it's an argument about metaphysics and gender and sexual identity. And it's, but it's a little bit strange as a metaphysical argument uh, because it it finds a, a, a way between what, at, the, at least at the, the extremes, is the sort of basic opposition on the topic these days. And because on one side you have uh, a cadre of thinkers for whom there's absolutely a metaphysics of sex and gender, and what metaphysics means are invariant, universal, and necessary norms of being. And then you have another opposed group who looks at the concrete situation and sees so much variation on matters of sex and gender. And that ranges, right? Uh, Variation culture to culture, variation within our culture, variation within personal instructions of identity, etc. And they go, well, obviously, this sort of metaphysicalizing of sex and gender uh, is nonsense. Because the, there's so much variation that the variations can't just be um, sort of, uh, you know, instances of physical and moral evil in the universe. You would have to condemn such just huge swaths of what seem like perfectly normal manifestations of culture and personal identity. And also. So, like, clearly this is not only bad, but also a kind of arbitrary imposition of one tradition's way of thinking uh, on the autonomy of persons all over the world through history, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, so not only do they think there's no metaphysical norms, but they also think the, the idea of imposing metaphysical norms is bad. 
Fair enough. I, I just want to add one thing about the first view. So in general, in the first view, um, it's not, it's not that the exceptions aren't noted or, or, you know, it's not like they, they don't acknowledge that there are exceptions, but the exceptions tend to operate on essentially a deficiency model, mm -hmm. right? That's so right. Um, to ignore gender for a second and just look at limbs, okay, most humans have four limbs. So the ones who have three, well, it's because there's something deficient. And again, so most women uh, can get pregnant and give birth. Um, and so women who can't are deficient. Um, so like the, so the first view doesn't um, ignore the reality of difference, but um, it definitely puts a different meaning on it. Right. Thank you. Failures to achieve finality are waste. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so, and so again, get, get, can get lumped under sort of in the really traditional terminology, sort of physical evil, quote unquote. Um, so being a, a Lonergan student, I see this and I, I, I thought there's a category missing here. And the category that seemed to be missing was the statistical. And I'll get to that in just a second. But Lonergan has this really interesting line in Insight where he says, um, you know, for some, the existence of variation seems to explode the idea that there's some kind of norm. But on the contrary, variation is evidence of a variable. So, so it's not as though the multiplicity of variation blows up the unity of metaphysical structure, but rather, no, 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 the multiplicity is itself evidence of some unifying principle. And he finds, particularly at the beginning of Insight, two basic kinds of variable. There is a kind of classical variable, which invariably produces its effects. If A, then B, but A, therefore B. But there's another kind. There are statistical intelligibility, statistical structures. And these are variables that produce their effect regularly, but only at the frequency with which their conditions are met. And the question of whether or not those conditions are met is really a matter of um, counting yes or no. Right. And so he talks about statistical aggregates as being sort of spatio-temporal gatherings of instances and a determination of how often within that spatio-temporal gathering, that statistical aggregate, the conditions happen to be fulfilled. And so my hunch when I set out on this was that when it comes to things biological, which at least in some measure we could say that things like uh, gender or sex and sexuality are to some extent um, and the extent to which they are is of course a point of debate that the, the sort of proper intelligibility was statistical that we're dealing with things like population dynamics or with hormonal accumulations and these kinds of things and so my sense is that uh, what are sometimes spoken of in, in absolute metaphysical terms are fulfilled actually at statistical in statistical ways. And so binary sexual differentiation into male and female, for example, or heterosexual attraction are going to predominate. They, they are, as a matter of fact, going to be the most regular instantiation. But you also have 
myriad kinds of intersex physiologies, whether they're uh, horm- uh, whether they're chromosomal or whether they're um, in terms of the visible physiology, et cetera. Um, and then you also have, you know, uh, there's a, uh, a biologist by the name of Balthazar who has an interesting theory about same-sex attraction that he, he thinks it's a, um, it's a kind of hormonal uh, divergence from the norm. And he, he has this interesting thing where he says, and even if it, it's not successful in an evolutionary sense in reproducing, it's so normal that it just keeps occurring in every generation. Um, so uh, in any case, I'm not going to get too far down the road on that, but you have these variations. Go ahead. Can you, can you give us a, a couple of um, completely different examples, John, for classical and statistical intelligence? Oh, yeah, sure, of course. Yeah. Um, so when we think of, for example, uh, the law of falling bodies, right? The, the rate at which objects accelerate towards the earth under the force of the earth's gravity. Um, that is something that is invariant. It's a classical law. Uh, wherever you are on the earth, this will be the rate at which things fall. Again, all other things being equal. But that all other things being equal, things like um, air density or something like that, right? Um, is actually a really big deal because that all other things being equal adverts to or, or indicates the fact that there are conditions under which in the concrete that invariant law or rule actually obtains. And so you can go really, you know, really sort of small grain, right? Uh, to do it in terms of, um, you know, the density of the medium through which it's falling. But you can also go really big, which is, well, but that's not true on Venus or Mars, right? The, the law of falling bodies is, a, is different if you go to a different planet with a different mass. Um, and you can do it. There's a lot of these you can do. Uh, I, I wish I was as well-versed in science as Lonergan was, and I could rattle off six or seven of these. Um, but I'm not, so I can't. But in any case, there's, um, there's even mm-hmm. more simple, like biological examples, right? Like yeah, kind of statistical. So, like, like a, take a clover, right? So, clovers are monocots, oh, which yeah. means that their leaves um, uh, are produced in groups of three, right? Um, so, banana is a monocot. That's why it divides into three. So, is a watermelon, anyways. Um, but there, but there's the existence of four leaf clovers, right? And so, under a classical system. Um, you get three leaf clovers because that always, mm-hmm. and then four leaf clovers take on kind of the character of like the magical or the right. supernatural or something because there's no understanding of regular variation. Whereas um, under a statistical model, you say, okay, well, because um, clovers are monocots, they come uh, with three leaves. However, one in 5,000 has four. Why? Because, well, plant reproduction is governed by a whole set of statistical norms. You can have somatic mutations. You can have, every time you, you reproduce a genome, you end up with small mutations and you end up with changes. You can also get five leaf clovers. They're quite rare. And, and, and under a statistical model, you say that these aren't like some miraculous intervention or some whatever, right. but actually a, like a recurring um, statistical norm so they're they're normal in the sense that 
they happen with like actually fairly predictable frequency and they're not normal in that they're an exception to the rule that clovers have three leaves. Does that make sense? No, that's very good. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's the thing about statistical intelligibility, statistical norms, is that the, the random divergences are included in the norm. That's the really central idea here, is that for st- something that's governed by statistical intelligibility, the, the random divergences are included in the norm. And moreover, because the divergences are random, they don't need to be explained. Right? That's the really hard thing to get, is that because the divergences are random, not only do they not need to be explained, they can't be explained. Right? They are the, the product of a conjunction of spatiotemporal conditions. Um, and at least for, for Lonergan, space and time have no imminent intelligibility. Right? They're not intelligible on their own. Um, you know, with apologies to, to John Milbank's weird prioritization of time in his metaphysics. But, um, but, that, but that point's not fundamentally different than uh, what Aristotle will call uh, you know, prime potency. Right. You know, it's... it's um, in Lonergan's terms, it's the empirical residue. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so it's, it's um, I can't remember which level of abstraction it is, but it's one of the things you abstract from for, for Thomas and for Aristotle. Yeah. Right. Um, so, 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 you have to, so you have to be aware of like the vocabulary here that we use norm and or like normal in kind of two different ways, often overlapping without us like making a clear differentiation. You have normal as in... Um, most of this, like, so if you think of a, um, a, a standard deviation curve, right, you have normal, which is the stuff under the big part of the curve. So the normal part, when we talk about normal three-leaf clover, like clovers, we mean three-leaf clovers. But um, at the same time, when you're talking about statistical variation, um, no, the norm or, or even normal actually includes the entire span of um, basically your statistical, you know, your, your plot, your deviation plot. So um, it becomes a bit of a, a difficult vocabulary thing here to be aware of that there's normal as in this is the most common way that this happens. Or if, ca- if all of causality like goes exactly as planned or whatever. But then there's also the norm as in, like John just said, these deviations are actually completely normal parts of the system. So um, yeah, it's just a bit of a vocabulary thing to be aware of. That when, when John says norm, he doesn't mean most common. He means the entire uh, statistical deviation graph. And, and, and this is not just an, uh, an inductive empirical point, but a metaphysical one. And the reason it's a metaphysical one is because it pertains to the, the, the structure of the intelligibility at work. And this is Lonergan's really challenging move, I think, is to say that um, statistical intelligibility is not... Uh, a defective kind of intelligibility, but a complementary kind of intelligibility to the classical. That it's a different, he uses the language of abstractive viewpoint. It's a different question that you can ask of the same data. And because it's a different question, you get an answer with a different significance. And the significance of both answers to the classical or the statistical are complementary to one another, which is indicated in the fact that um, you can ask, right, uh, what occurs invariably when these conditions are met, that's a classical intelligibility, and how often are these conditions in fact met, statistical. Okay, so, so that suggests, and this is, I use language that is, that is a little bit uh, 
what would you say, uh, at a right angle to the, the contemporary usage. But, uh, but I do it because I, I, partly because I couldn't think of a better way of articulating it. But I call this structure, this predominance of binary sexual differentiation and heterosexual attraction in human beings, the statistical heteronormativity. Now, I'm not using heteronormativity there in the evaluative sense that um, what Sarah Coakley calls postmodern gender theorists are. I'm using it more in what we would call a descriptive sense, that there's a, there's a statistical norm and it's towards binary sexual differentiation and heterosexual attraction. Um, so if you do a histogram, right, you get two peaks. But here's the thing about human beings is that we don't just mediate our world to ourselves by these kind of objects of thought like biology and metaphysics and statistical methods. We also constitute our world through our objects of thought or in, in Lonergan's idiom, right, through meaning. And so most of the world that we occupy and most of our living happens in a world that's made of human meanings. So I, the thing I do with my students, right, is I have them look. We're, we're in a classroom, and so we have ugly institutional carpet with some weird pattern in it meant to hide stains. And I say, someone in a room, some designer, came up with that carpet pattern, and you're now living with their idea. When you walk down the sidewalk, the sidewalk squares have a certain dimension, and some guy in an office in City Hall decided that the sidewalk squares would have that dimension and not a foot smaller or whatever. Um, but there are more mundane examples of this, right? There's a difference between just food and cuisine. There's a difference between just clothing and style or fashion, or even maybe, maybe more illuminatively uniforms, right? A uniform isn't just clothes. A uniform is a carrier of meaning such that if someone is walking down the street in a policeman's uniform and they're not a policeman, that's a crime. We put people in jail for that. Um, and so from here, I'm able to move from the physiological or biological into the social and cultural, such that I can say that gender and sexual identity, because they are sort of more fully a part of our human world that's constructed, constituted by meanings, are something that have a relative autonomy, a relative independence with regard to the physiological, right? That there's, there's something more to them as meaningful than just our physiology and just our biology. However, I use statistical intelligibility, a kind of metaphysics of the statistical to make the point that human beings create these meanings. We create these cultures where things like gender and sexual identity have a significance under what I call the constraint of statistical heteronormativity or biological statistical heteronormativity. And what I mean by constraint is that our physiology makes certain kinds of cultural making probable, right? It doesn't make them necessary, but it does mean that as a matter of fact, you see social roles, institutions, uh, cultural expressions of identity and relationship that make meaningful the binary sexual differentiation and heterosexual attraction of, again, right on our histogram, the, the peaks. And that, to me, is really the, the more important part of this argument, which is that our cultural making is embodied, and so the dynamics of our embodiment, the statistical dynamics of our embodiment, 
as a kind of causal force, not, right? Not an absolute necessitating um, determination, but a constraint. It makes certain kinds of certain broad analogically related forms of social. Um, I, I ran the list earlier. I won't. I won't belabor it. But it makes certain cultural constructs more probable. Uh, let me stop there for a second. Because that's really the, that's like the central thing. And there's some refinements of that at the end of the article. But let me stop there and see if you guys have any questions or thoughts about that. I mean, I suppose you could, you could just concretize that point a bit, right? So, so what, what are going to be, give us some examples of a, of a sort of predominating form of cultural expression that's that's likely to emerge um given the underlying constraints of of the biology right i mean one we see in most cultures is some kind of uh socially significant partnership and pairing of males and females um under the name marriage, right? Or some sort of analogous thing, right? Now, sometimes in some cultures, marriage is, I mean, if you, you know, and if you want to see the breadth of variation, uh, read the Bible, <laughs> in which there are lots of different forms of marriage. Um, there's even one weird form of marriage in Genesis where you can lie about your relationship, say your brother and sister, and the Pharaoh can sleep with your wife. Um, and it seems like that was a good idea. But uh, so that would be that would be one, right? Is that we we see that there's a a, a statistical constraint, which is to say a, a variable, making probable the various different kinds of marriage. Now, some are polygamous. Um, there are certainly cultures in which there are uh, third, fourth, even fifth genders, and the relationship to reproductive social pairing between males and females is more complicated. Sometimes they're celibate, sometimes they're not, etc. But again, it doesn't have to be absolute in its determination uh, because the point is that you, what you have is identifiable, an identifiable unifying variable that is the principle generating variation. Um, but I mean, you can have other things too, right? You can have with the, that kind of institutional structure of marriage, you can have a differentiation of social, what we would call, we'll get to in a second, social values of different social roles. Um, and it, and it can seem within a particular culture like those are natural, which is to say um, sort of carved into the grain of the universe. Um, but of course, as, as Western societies, uh, especially in the 20th century, have worked really hard to make clear, they are not. Um, so anyway, is that, maybe that's enough. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. But, but I think it helps clarify too, um, I'm always really interested when people say like, oh, such and such is, is merely a social construct or mm. like merely a cultural construct as if it, it's essentially an impotent force then. Like, like we could just change it tomorrow. But I think one of the things that societies have shown us is that cultural constructs are incredibly powerful and they linger. I mean, for, for generations and generations. And, and part of that, of course, and I think um, one of the strengths of, of looking at it this way is that when you understand culture as a set of meanings, that meaning, of course, always originates in knowers, mm-hmm. right? So in people who's, um, to whom the world is mediated by their experience, 
and their understanding and their judgment and, and, and everyone's experience and understanding judgment is embodied um, in bodies that are going to display whatever sort of, you know, hormonal aspects and, and, and um, physical aspects and, and, and all that sort of stuff. And then those, um, those meanings, which, and again, if, if essentially the, the embodied nature of most of the people generating those meanings falls under the statistical, like the most common part of the statistical deviation, then of course the meanings that you create are going to also fall under that. Um, and so, and not necessarily out of like a desire for oppression or whatever, but because we tend to make meaning out of our own experience. Yeah, and, then, right. and then, um, and it's usually only when we stop or ourselves are limited or changed or we encounter someone else that then you, you start to question those meanings. Like I always think about stairs, right? I mean, most humans have two legs that work. So lots and lots and lots of buildings have stairs, which we never think about and the meaning like involved in that until you're with someone who can't do stairs. Um, and, and in many ways, I think a lot of our, our cultural constructs come up from things just as simple as that. But it also helps explain why cultural constructs are so strong because you have these sets of meanings that are generated in people's experience and then are communicated to others um, and without any even like... I mean, we could talk about power and we can talk about oppression and all that, but even aside from all of those things, you tend to have shared meanings arise from people who have shared experiences. Um, and out of that, you get sets of meanings that, that you know, we call cultural constructs, and those end up being incredibly strong because they're rooted in this individual, like in all of these experiences that happen to be extremely similar. And so... Um, I think it also gives you a way of explaining why something like a social construct, while it's not necessarily universal, has such such pervasive strength. Mm. Yeah, let me make uh, a metaphysical point and an ethical point about that. So the the metaphysical point is um, the, the metaphysical point is that you're going to have the emergence of uh, the continual emergence of uh, persons who diverge from the sort of peaks of the histogram, right? From the norm in that sense. Uh, And because the norm is statistical, right? Which is to say, to some extent has to do with quantity. um, You're, that's going to be the the smaller group. Um, And more, even moreover, uh, those emergence, those divergences are going to emerge randomly. Right, the point I made earlier. They don't need to be explained because they occur randomly. And if something is random, there's no intelligibility behind it. Um, and so I think, as a matter of method, the approach that has, that has emerged in postmodern gender theories of various kinds of speaking in terms of uh, quote-unquote queer theory, um, or you know, sometimes I'll, I'll hear people gripe about... Uh, you know, LGBTQIA plus the sort of expansion of the letters in that. Um, is that technically an acronym? Is that an acronym just when you list the letters or does it have to like, is it like, does it have to be like scuba? I can't remember how that works. Anyway, now I'm on a tangent. The point is um, people will gripe about that, but that seems to me methodologically perfectly appropriate. 
that if the, the divergences are going to emerge randomly, that there's going to be this panoply of different cultural expressions of people trying to make meaningful their identity, especially if they're in a culture that has made meaning out of gender, out of uh, sexual differentiation, let's say, and sexual attraction, um, according to the predominating binary and heterosexual attraction, right? If, if, the, if the predominating forms are going to be the thing that drive cultural meaning, then you're going to have a, a population constantly um, that if they're given any space at all to exercise some kind of self-meaning making, some kind of self-reflection and some kind of self-expression, um, you're going to see the explosion of various, um, you know, multiplying forms of self-identity, self-expression, social play, social role, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so the sort of expansion of queer theory into all of its various, you know, tributaries um, just makes perfect methodological sense to me. It seems like that's exactly what we should expect to happen and it's exactly what should be happening. Um, and so the odd thing is that while my thesis might seem, because it has the word heteronormativity in it, opposed to queer theory, I think it actually provides a metaphysical argument for queer theory's existence, um, which is a bit odd, right? Since so much queer theory is anti-metaphysical. But anyway, that's a bit of a, that's a whole other rabbit hole we could go down. The other point I wanted to make is the ethical one, which is, but if these communities, if we would expect heuristically that these communities will be small numerically, then in most societies, unless they are very sensitive, they are going to be minority communities without very much power. And so there's a question then of the safety, the well-being, the integration of people who are a part of that um, normal but divergent subset. And one of, the, one of the, the few, so this essay really is a work of metaphysics. I think at most someone told me at a conference that I could call it meta-ethics. I think that's probably fair. But we really avoid making normative ethical claims in it. And uh, I wrote it with Neil Ormrod of Australian Catholic University, just if I keep saying we. Um, but there is one really strong ethical claim we make in it, which is uh, cultures have a responsibility to take cognizance of the constraint of statistical heteronormativity on their unreflective cultural make. That this is going to be a force at work uh, and it's going to incline cultural making in a particular direction or particular directions if it's not something that's appropriated and made explicit and taken in hand. Um, and if that means that in the one direction uh, you want to absolutize it, you really want to double down on it, um, that is one of the options. And the another option is you can say, uh, this is a kind of terrible imposition of our uh, physiology insofar as it marginalizes certain people um, de facto. And so we really want to really scrub that constraint from our cultural making. Um, now, I think that project would be quite hard to maintain generation after generation. But if that's what a community decides they want to do, it's certainly one of the options, at least implied by the theory. Um, any questions about those two points before I, I get to the sort of scale of values piece? So, so one, I, I suppose one thing to, to draw attention to then is that um, it's, it's, it's simply not the case that the generation of cultural meaning that attaches to, um, say, non-predominating forms of of sexuality or biology is a new thing. It's no. not that that every you know 
Judith Butler woke up one day and wrote a book and then everyone decided we should attach cultural meaning to these phenomena. Um, it's that the, the meanings themselves in our own culture have undergone a change um, in terms of the um, sort of organizing imagination underneath them that no longer is taboo and disgust reaction and, uh, you know, all, all of these, these um, forms of cultural expression that have historically attached to many of these realities um, have, have slowly been altered over time. And in our own culture and in our own situation, there's been a very concerted effort to try to create and generate the cultural meanings that would allow for inclusion into the predominating community set. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and, and I think at bottom, um, an effort to do just what I said, right? An effort to, to take in hand um, that process of cultural making and, and pry it out of other forces um, like the will to power or what have you right, right. Um, right. that might be constraining it, that might be determining it. And kind of before that or alongside that, you actually have just straight up a questioning of the dominating set, right? Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that came out of, out of feminist reflection in the 20th century is that, okay, women might be like part of the dominant set like statistically, right? Like, um, you know, um, cis heterosexual women, um, but haven't been part of the dominant creation of meaning with those sets, right? So you had a lot right. of women being like, well, actually, like, you know, so you have the biological reality of babies that doesn't actually come with a meaning that you can't leave your home or you can't think logically or whatever, you know, use a chainsaw. Um, whatever it happens to be that like, um, so on, you have the statistical heteronormativity, which in which like deviations, um, fall outside the norm, but you also have the reality that in the dominating set itself, you had a very limited group constructing meaning essentially. Right. No, that's, yeah, or, that's or, right. or driving the construction of meaning. And, and I, and I want to just put a, an asterisk on, on the whole conversation um, in case anyone's really pulling their hair out. When we're using the language of divergence or deviation here, we're using it in the statistical sense, not in an evaluative sense. Um, so I, I could imagine someone to this point of the conversation pulling their hair out because they're going, oh, great, you keep calling me deviant and you keep calling me divergent. Um, and, and while I am sensitive to the connotation that can have, here it's being used in a sort of precisely controlled methodological, really mathematical sense rather than moral evaluative one. I, I've, I've really tried hard to, um, to scrub any kind of uh, ethical determination from the, the way this is hashed out, except ethical in the sense of this is, this is what uh, a better, this, an, ethic, an ethics for metaphysicians, <laughs> right? Hey, metaphysicians do better um, is, is one of the implications here. So, so the, but the category I've been using so far of culture or society is enormous. It's almost the entirety of human living everywhere, always, since forever. Um, so in terms of data sets, it's almost all of the data. And one of the things that, that Neil really helped me with was Lonergan has another conceptuality, in addition to the statistical intelligibility, statistical heuristic structures, is that of the, the scale of values, the scale of value preferences, which we talked about last week a little bit. And his intuition, I think it's the right one, is that if you're going to talk about society and culture, the, 
the data set is so enormous that you need some kind of structuring heuristic. You need some structure that can help you make sense of um, how you're going to navigate the whole, the, the entirety of human living. And so the scale of values gives you a way of talking about, okay, what would be the significance of the cultural construction of gender and sexual identity uh, and sexual relationality at the level of vital values, right? And the, distribu- the distribution of vital goods at the level of social value of how we're going to arrange the sort of material conditions of the distribution of vital goods at the level. And this is where I think it happens most is sort of between the cultural value level and the social value level, right? So that we're reflecting on the meaning of gender identity and sexual identity, um, but really with a view towards creating a social structure that's going to distribute vital goods, safety in an equitable way. Um, and then cultural values are really, they, they come from personal values. The cultures, um, though there is a constraining downward effect on, on persons of their culture, in terms of the, the principle by which cultures are generated, modified, move forward, denigrated, sent into decay, people, people are the principle. Because as Robin was saying earlier, People are the, one who's, are the ones whose understandings and meanings get enacted in social structures, in cultural manifestations, et cetera. Um, and the thing we really left off was religious value. Um, the task of dealing with the question of the dogmatic context on these questions, the practices of actual concrete religious communities. The paper was already too long. I'm going to have to do proof soon, and we've got to cut it down uh, to, the, to meet the word limit for theological studies. It's already too long. So we just didn't even get into that. So, so ironically today, we're, we're not having a theological discussion about this. Um, we're doing anthropology, uh, philosophical, metaphysical anthropology to some extent. Um, but the theological has been largely left out here. Um, and, and when the paper comes out, or if you, know, if you want to send me an, uh, a tweet, I can, um, on, a, on a selective basis, maybe send you the manuscript if you're really interested. Um, but we, we sort of indicate some of the ways in which the scale of values helps to organize the data on gender and sexual identity. Um, but again, that, to really spell that all the way out would be a, an independent project, probably monograph length. Uh, we, don't, we don't get into it. But, but just the suggestion that um, you need some further heuristic if you're going to move from the physiological and biological into the cultural to differentiate the sets of values and problems at stake in, in, in making a, a culture on issues relevant to gender and sexual identity. Questions about that piece? Okay. The, the nice thing about using the scale of values is the, the scale of values itself, uh, because it's a scale of value preference, has, uh, it tips in the direction of ethics. So that if you still wanted to be sort of broadly Thomist, um, you could do an evaluation of the significance uh, or some element that's significant for gender and sexual identity and work it out in terms of, well, are the are certain lower values, lower goods, to use the traditional language, being elevated above higher goods, right? Are persons being denigrated in the name of getting some kind of particular good? Um, is, is cultural reflection not occurring because there's preoccupation with social arrangements, and et cetera, et cetera? Um, is there a truncation of the religious? Is that really not being allowed into the discussion in some way? And that a disorder in the, the arrangement of the hierarchy of values on this question 
um, would indicate that something was amiss in a culture's construction of gender and sexual identity. It wouldn't answer all your questions for you. You still have to do the work of discerning that, um, but at least would get you going. You wouldn't just be starting from the mass of data on an entire culture. All right, I think that's all I have to say about that, unless you guys want to follow up on anything. I just have um, two points. First, um, because I'm kind of a perfectionist, uh, I, th- I thought of a better way of expressing the whole like norm normal thing. I guess what I wanted to say about that was that um, like a three-leaf clover is more common, but a four-leaf clover is equally normal. Very good. Right? And so again, um, statistically, like, uh, he- you know, uh, heterosexual, um, cisgendered is more common, but it's not any more normal than any of the other expressions. Um, but sec- and secondly, um, I kind of want to make a point, it's almost a point of, of compassion towards the classical system or, or towards um, the desire to really hold on to um, normative systems that, that we build a ton of meaning on things like our sexuality, um, our relationships, our you know, marriages, family, ability to reproduce and all of that and classical systems give us a lot of they give us a feeling of control and and a statistical model like this especially before it's grounded in 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 a a rich understand like metaphysical understanding and stuff ends up really i think forcing people to call their entire lives into question and, and the meaning that they've associated with themselves and their bodies and their relationships into question. And that's not, I don't, I don't say that as a, um, uh, an excuse or like a defense, but um, I think it's really helps us understand as well why people become so desperate to hold on to cultural constructions. Um, that, that there's, you risk shifting me now. I mean, I think the risk is totally worth it. And I think any cultural meaning that like vastly excludes a group of people um, is a huge problem. And not only that, I think there's a lot we can learn about ourselves by, um, by this expansion of meaning that you allow. But, um, but I think it also, um, it helps explain what you've laid out here is a much more demanding and difficult system, I think. Um, And so, um, part of that moral responsibility that you laid out to be cognizant of statistical normativity is also basically um, an ethical responsibility towards humility and willingness to put our own um, meanings and our own relationships under question. In, in Dimensions of Meaning, Lonergan implies that uh, modernity is a project that isn't like over. It hasn't wrapped up. And we're now mopping up the sort of consequences of modernity as a project. Lonergan implies modernity's kind of just starting. Um, and the task is so enormous that, that it's going to take us a long time to get a handle on it. Um, that, that really facing up to the historical consciousness of human beings, the responsibility human beings have for constructing the world in which they live, that reflecting on it in a, in a theoretical and in a scholarly and in a responsible way 
is the task of generations. And so the, the conflicts we've had around such, as you say, right, this really, this really intimate personal element of our being, gender and sexuality, it's, it seems to me it's, it's going to be ongoing in part because we haven't, we, we haven't rounded it off yet. We still have a, just a mountain of work to do. Um, and while on the one hand, I find that a little bit comforting uh, because... It keeps us employable. Yeah, fact. Um, I mean, it's so long as anyone cares. But the, uh, I, I find it comforting also in the sense that, um, you know, you get all these sort of different kinds of genealogies of decline. Um, and it, it makes me think that those genealogies probably aren't that trustworthy because they're dealing with a data set that's too small. Uh, they, they cover hundred year, hundreds of years, and yet still they're just not sufficient data to come to any conclusions yet. Um, on the other hand, that's also daunting because it means that any work we do is probably going to have to be taken up by uh, later and hopefully more proficient geniuses than ourselves. And you have to be able to let go uh, somewhat of that, like you said, in humility. Um, yeah, the, 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 the phenomena you're attempting to, to understand are human phenomena. And yet they feel, they don't feel human sized, right? The sort of the scale of their occurrence and the depth of the intelligibility seem um, so wildly to outpace what uh, we're capable of understanding or judging um, within the the circumscriptions of our own living. Yeah. Which doesn't, which, which is an incongruence that, that is um, disquieting. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, we, we sort of make this thing uh, and, then, and then we uh, go, oh, no, I'm out of time. But, but to, shift, um, to shift our attention to, um, to a better understanding of the relevant data on questions like this is already a humongous civilizational step in the right direction. To be able to ask the the, the questions of biological and social data that have uh, been been the the sort of raw materials of cultural making as long as there's been culture, but um, but have been misunderstood for most of that time. Um, that that the, the the character of these data is not um, classical laws on an analogy with Newton. Uh, but statistical laws on an analogy with the weather. Yeah, I think, um, I think that's right. And, and, and so it, giving attention to that and, and analyzing that and trying to understand that at a metaphysical level seems like you're setting better, more statistically probable conditions for more adequate and just uh, social and cultural creations. I hope so. And, and it, let me make one theological point. Um, I, I, tend, I follow Lonergan in, th- in the way that I think about speculative theology. And so all of the things that I've said here so far um, may or may not, but I, I don't come down one way or the other necessarily, at least in the argument, have anything to say about what Christian doctrine should be. Um, because doctrine, at least in, in, the, in the strongest sense, right, so, or, or even dogma, uh, of that which we could not know unless it were revealed to us by God. Um, these are all things that we can investigate under our human powers. And so they belong, like I was saying earlier, properly to philosophy, 
And for Lonergan, speculative theology is a matter of looking at the conjunction of doctrines and dogmas, that which we assent to uh, on the basis of the, the trustworthiness and the authoritative believability of the church and through the church Christ, um, and, and acknowledging that we don't understand exactly how it can be that all these things we have said are true are in fact true. We, we, in our faith, we affirm them to be true, but um, as it was for Augustine and later Anselm and so on, you know, how it was that God's grace is completely gratuitous and also we are really free is a, a really hard thing to figure out. And it took a, a, about a thousand years for someone to work it through. And Lonergan thinks, and I'm pretty convinced by him, that, that Thomas Aquinas was able to work it out. But there had to be, and if you read chapter one of Grace and Freedom, all of these... Incre- or write a dissertation about it. Or write a dissertation about it, as the case may be. <laughs> um, you'll discover that there's all these incremental philosophical, theoretical developments that have to occur, and then they have to coalesce in someone's mind enough that they can offer some still not perfect, right? Still imperfect, but nonetheless fruitful insight into how it is that these two doctrines can fit together. So when it comes to these topics, or at least when it comes to doctrines that would touch on these topics, in principle, right, as a matter of theological method, if I, what I'm doing more broadly in my work is speculative theology, I can still affirm that which is revealed by Christ. And yet say, and yet I don't entirely understand it. I believe it to be true, but I have questions. And I have a lot of questions, even. 10,000 difficulties do not, do not make a doubt, as Newman said. Um, and so it seems to me that you could, one of the promises of this approach is that on such controverted matters of gender and sexuality within Catholic theology, Christian theology more broadly, you could have a continuity of affirmation of doctrine. Again, in principle, doing this would be a lot of work. It would be a, a, whole, a whole book or two. Um, you could have a continuity of affirmation of doctrine, but a renewal and transformation of the speculative understanding of those doctrines in their conjunction. Um, and we've had that a bunch of times through history. Um, but the failure to distinguish those two things, right? The affirmation of that which is revealed on the authority of the church versus what is generated philosophically under the, our human powers of inquiry and investigation um, as a kind of speculative matter. Those are different tasks. And when you conflate them, you get into all kinds of trouble. Uh, and so I want to be really clear here that those are distinct um, in this, in this, which is why it's a work of metaphysical anthropology and not really, uh, we haven't been having a discussion about theology, even though this is your weekly theology podcast. Well, it seems like a, uh, as good a segue as we're going to get. That seems true. Uh, treasures old and new. Ryan's going to do it for us this week. So that's, a the, the, the little riff on speculative theology, which I, I should say is the methodologically the subject of of much of my own work so uh i i could talk about that ad nauseum maybe you will one of these days yeah maybe um but one fellow traveler in uh in that is uh sarah coakley who um published i believe in 2015 2013 wow it's been longer than i thought um 
her the the first book of her projected four volume systematic theology entitled God, Sexuality, and the Self: An Essay on the Trinity. Now you'll find references to this book going back into like the late nineties. Uh, so it it took the better part of two decades to write. Um, and when you read it, you'll figure out why, uh, because it is both a profound reflection um, on the developments of um, first, second, and third wave feminism, on the uh, modern history of social theory, on patristic theology, um, on the, the project of systematics and of theoretical inquiry more generally in a postmodern context. Western art. Western, yeah, Western art. And it's doing all of this, all of this with an economy of, of pages that is quite stunning. Um, and so uh, for, this is, this is my treasure new, in, in case you uh, were wondering. But uh, I, I come back to this work time and again because I find it is such a clear and, um, and fresh articulation of the importance of theological method and the legitimacy of theoretical and systematic forms of theological inquiry at a moment in time and in a context in which most of the prevailing headwinds in philosophy and theology and in society more broadly are all against theoretical inquiry uh, for a whole bunch of different reasons. And what, what Coakley does so elegantly is thread a needle between the legitimate concerns that mobilize those headwinds um, while at the same time outmaneuvering the critiques and, sh- and really demonstrating quite, quite clearly how the, the critiques may have a legitimacy of their own, but they don't actually hit squarely the target that they're aiming for. And so she talks about the modern forms of resistance to systematic theology. And um, she, very, she very carefully shows um, how the moral impulse of these forms of resistance is legitimate, but they don't in and of themselves um, over-determine the systematic project. So she's making a formal apology for systematics and then enacting it uh, with respect to the doctrine of the Trinity. And now what she does there is very, once very, very traditional and very innovative with her own systematic elaborations of, of Trinitarian doctrine. But uh, for, for my purposes right now, what I, what I really want to highlight, um, because I think it's the element that sometimes gets overlooked in reviews of the book, is the important methodological work that she's doing in, in really trying to show not just the legitimacy, but the aptness of systematic theology in our time. Uh, so go read it. It's just wonderful. My Treasure Old, um, which is appropriate enough for a podcast in which we've talked a lot of metaphysics, is uh, Etienne Gilson's Being and Some Philosophers, which was frustratingly out of print for a time. Um, and so you had to either use decaying old copies from the 50s and 60s or you had to rely upon you know library copies or or pirated pdfs um but thankfully um in a of a more recent vintage um the 
uh, Pontifical Institute for Medieval Studies, PIMS, uh, up at the University of Toronto, uh, reprinted, uh, Gilles Sons being in some philosophers. Um, it's a classic work of Christian philosophy, tracing the, um, the sort of central meaning of the term being from Plato to Aristotle to Avicenna to Aquinas, and then even into, into modernity. And showing how, while the, while the term being is used throughout the entire history of Western philosophy, what being properly denotes within any, within a, any given uh, system of philosophy changes and develops uh, in, in conversation with philosophy that preceded it. And so what being means for Plato is something slightly different than what it means for Aristotle and in turn different from Avicenna or Aquinas or Sartre. And uh, Gilles Sloan traces this with uh, a, a, great, um, a great historical sensitivity, but a historical sensitivity that's grounded in a conviction that history of philosophy is still philosophy. So he's not pretending to be a historian. He's still quite uh, consciously engaged in a philosophical project, but showing how history of philosophy in itself is illustrative as a philosophical and not just a historical argument. So go read Gilson too. Terrific. I remember as an undergraduate, R.J. Snell, who I think now is at the Witherspoon Institute, uh, recommended that book to me. And then I went uh, to try and find it online and people were charging like $125 for copies of it. Uh, well, now it's downright affordable. That's terrific. That's just great news. Um, all right. Well, that's our, that's our show for this week. Thanks for listening. Hope you found it edifying. Uh, if you have thoughts, uh, things you'd like to contribute, questions you'd like to follow up with, you can, uh, you can tweet at the show at SystematicPod on Twitter. If you want to send us an email, you can send us an email, uh, systematicallypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, our outro music, as always, is by Nine Inch Nails. It's track 14 off of Ghosts 2. I want to thank Robin and Ryan for uh, listening to me go on about my work this week again. Um, Robin, we look forward to hearing from you uh, next week or the week after. Um, Ryan, thanks for your treasures old and new. And, Absolutely. Uh, remember. And good luck to Brian defending his yeah, dissertation. I'm sure, he's, I'm sure he'll have done great. We'll hear all about it next week. Um, all right, y'all. Bye. Be reasonable. Bye.